Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, first up, since the year kicked off, we've been devoting a part of the show to Australia's preparations on and off the field for the Women's World Cup, now less than five months away. But of course, Australia are co-hosting this historic event with our friends across the ditch, New Zealand. So we thought we were overdue to check in with the latest on the Kiwis preparations and expectations both on and off the park. And when you talk football in the land of the long white cloud, the go-to voice is, of course, our friend from Sky Sports New Zealand, the great Jason Pine, who we'll be chatting to soon. Then off the back of what finally looks like the dawning of a new era at Old Trafford, we'll talk to the Guardian's Jamie Jackson about just what Eric Ten Hag has managed to do with the Red Devils that every other manager since the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson has not been able to do with the League Cup now in the trophy cabinet and what looks like a genuine threat way title race underway. It'll be good to lift the hood and find out what someone who follows the club at very close quarters thinks about what's going on there. And we might even slip one in about the uh, ownership uh, saga as it continues to play out. And of course, we'll wrap it up with a few other little tidbits uh, in World Cup Corner. Now, Edge, uh, you are far away. Um, and uh, as podcasts uh, want to do, uh, we probably have got uh, a, a slightly varying audio quality here, but it's uh, it's good enough for us to get the job done, mate. So uh, so let's carry on and I'll ask you how you are, brother. You um, Your travels continue. Hello, Rob. Yes, uh, looking forward to the show ahead. Um, Jason Pine, always informative on what's happening in the land of the long white cloud. And what about Manchester United, Rob? Silverware has returned to Old Trafford. And yes, those Manchester United fans, all of a sudden, they're everywhere. They sure are. And Derek, you're well and truly prepared for a yarn with Jamie. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing just how important this League Cup stacks up in the grand history of Manchester United. Is it a stepping stone towards greater things? Is it something that deserves to be celebrated uh, or have they got bigger fish to fry this season uh, being in four competitions and the quadruple theoretically being on so yeah looking forward to uh, talking about that Rob. Excellent all right what are you going to get us started off with Willem? Good to be back guys feeling refreshed fit and firing we'll start with the Matildas off the back of the Cup of Nations Tony Gustafsson has lauded their ability to find ways to win Uh, they rounded out the tournament with a 3-0 win over Jamaica last Wednesday Katrina Gorry, Alex Chidiak and Caitlin Ford scored in the side's seventh straight win their best run now since 2017 they'll next turn out in England on April 12 against the Pom Rob, uh, you don't want to be too cynical about these things, but we did have a bit of a chuckle uh, during the week. What did you make of Football Australia's crafty work in cobbling together a tournament that didn't really mean anything? The players played their part. They got the job done. They were then presented with a a silver-coloured plastic trophy. Uh, But they did manage to lull the mainstream media here into some very much-needed, some... uh, some very well-enjoyed, good publicity on the eve of the tournament. Yeah, I think that's the point, Willem. Um, As long as Tony Gustafsson and the players aren't lulled into uh, the thought that this is a trophy worth winning, then that's okay. But what we need here is some good PR outside of the uh, the bubble that is football so football fans don't know that it wasn't a real trophy but we, we if you can if you can um, dupe the, uh, the the media to reporting on it as if it's a trophy one then the the 
sporting public outside of uh, football uh, will, will maybe fall in a little sooner. And that's what we've been talking about for the last couple of months. Just when, when will the, the general public, the sporting public, uh, line up and start following uh, this tournament? So if, if it served any purpose uh, outside of the environment of the uh, the dressing room, then that's a good thing. Insofar as what it served uh, on the park, I think uh, the job was as well done as it could possibly have been done. We all know that Spain were uh, uh, a, a team that was well and truly under strength, but Spain, again, a, a rising European nation who can put out probably a couple of quality sides, and they did. Uh, they came back. We nearly lost that one through, uh, you know, it was 3-2 in the end. We talked about that with Derek last week. Jamaica, they were, you know, good value during the week. They, they, they um, uh, you know, parked the bus for large parts of the game, but um, but they did what they needed to do to at least leave with some respect. And Shakir, again, Edge, I mean, I'll ask you the question. You, you, you follow the women's game more closely than anybody I know. Uh, Let's just put aside the, uh, you know, the fake trophy for one, a moment. What's your view of uh, of what we saw in in that uh, that uh, series of warm up matches? Well, they're building momentum, aren't they? Um, they're getting a little bit more settled in the back half. I think Claire Hunt has made a big contribution to the centre of defence. Um, uh, I think that's um, an exciting period of time ahead for her. She could really nail a position alongside Claire Polkinghorne. Um, the player that really surprised me, I haven't been impressed with her at all until the last um, window and that was uh, Mackenzie Arnold who I've been pretty critical of but uh, she did had two very very good games um, Yeah, so I think there's some momentum building for the Matildas, they need it um, they were good wins uh, and I think uh, six wins on the trot now um, and they'll go into the farewell game which I understand will be announced um, after we record this podcast and they can look forward to the World Cup with a little bit more confidence because it was looking bleak uh, three or four months ago. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, the, the, the team is taking shape and that com- the combinations he's got in the midfield seem to, um, you know, seem to be doing the job for him at the moment. So, yeah, I- I'm feeling a lot more optimistic. On to a sombre note, over in the UK, revered commentator John Motson has been remembered as an icon of the English game following his passing last week, aged 77. Motson had a near 50-year career with the BBC from 1971 and was awarded an OBE for services to sport in 2001. He called 10 World Cups, 10 European Championships and 29 FA Cup Finals, Derek, before he retired uh, in 2018. Uh, we're going to bring you in here, uh, Del, to pay tribute and to lead us through a couple of highlights that uh, that you've curated. Yeah, well, I think what we'll do is uh, we'll listen to a bit of John Motson because Potentially, it's a voice that some of our audience, particularly in Australia, might be familiar with. They might have seen YouTube clips. There might be expats like me who are um, familiar with his work. But let's just hear a couple of moments now of uh, John Motson in action. Tremendous spirit in this Hereford side. They're not giving this up by any means. Radford. Now Tudor's gone down for Newcastle. Radford again. Oh, what a goal! What a goal! Radford the scorer, Ronnie Radford, and the crowd, the crowd are invading the pitch, and now it will take some time to clear the field. And it's Arshavin, just bringing the ball inside for Arsenal, Arshavin square to Song, centre of the field, 25 yards out, Alex Song, oh and he's found Thierry Henry in the box, and he's done it! I think you'll agree there, gentlemen, that was uh, just a selection of... Uh, his great work. One of the first one there was his iconic call of a FA Cup match between Hereford United and Newcastle United and an iconic goal by John Radford. It was very, very early on in 
John Motson's career only three uh, years into it. He probably didn't expect to be calling such an iconic goal as, as that one, one of the uh, FA Cup goals. And of course, I was a bit cheeky there. He, he's synonymous for me with a piece of commentary with uh, Thierry Henry returning on a loan deal to Arsenal back in 2012 for a FA Cup tie against Leeds United. Uh, and it's the first time he'd played for Arsenal for some years. He'd been at Barcelona and a few other clubs. And he was back and he scored on his uh, on his return to the Emirates Stadium. And what a magnificent call that was. I'm sure that uh, um, sent goosebumps, Edge, up, uh, up your arms and everywhere else when you heard that. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And I didn't, you know, um, his voice was just so uh, synonymous with so many magical moments in football, wasn't it? Uh, especially English football. So, yes, it, it, the one that you referred to there, uh, Derek, definitely did uh, send shivers down the spine. And, well, and before you carry on, I know that uh, as, a, as a young kid who used to buy yeah, Roy of the Rovers comics uh, and, and, and um, listen to whatever radio, scratchy radio I could uh, at all hours of the night to, to pick up English football commentary that um, that whenever I got the chance to hear his voice, I, I sort of felt warm and cosy. Uh, um, as a young bloke, Willem, um, you know, you are uh, a guy who, who loves his football history. Uh, how, how does his uh, his name and, uh, and his uh, uh, reputation resonate with you? Re- it resonates when I put it together with the fact that he was the guy who wore the sheepskin coat. This is the one thing that we maybe can't pay tribute to on the audio medium uh, along with the commentary. But Derek, the uh, the sheepskin coat, the sort of beige tan uh, long number that he wore for 20, 30 years uh, took on a bit of a life of its own. And uh, I think he just about kept the, the company that put them together going for a few more years than perhaps their, uh, their business acumen uh, were worth. Yeah, the sheepskin coat was definitely his signature and became he became the caricature in a way of the the football commentator, I mean, brimming with enthusiasm, almost like a sort of schoolboyish kind of enthusiasm for the game, even in, even in his later years. Encyclopedic knowledge of the game as well. He was never caught out on anything. And while we listen to some commentators now with some measure of chagrin as they try and come up with poetry and naff gags and naff lines uh, on their commentaries, John Motson just called it like he is. He covered 29 FA Cup finals, 10 World Cup finals, and and covered some big ones, including the 1986 game, Diego Maradona, the the hand of God. It was just an infectious enthusiasm for the game that, as Rob said, immediately immediately drew you in. And he had a great way with words. And I'll I'll leave you with one, Willem, before we go back to the news. He said once, for those of you watching in black and white, Spurs are wearing yellow. Well said. No, well said, Derek. And yeah, as I guess one of the great things about commentary is his work will uh, will outlast him and uh, take his uh, his legacy with it. Uh, gents, we're nearly 13 minutes in and we haven't paid tribute to Ange Postacoglu. A third trophy with Celtic. They've outlasted Rangers 2-1 to retain the Scottish League Cup at Hampton Park. Diogo Furuhashi at the double in the first half, as he did uh, in their December 2021 triumph. Alvaro Morelos did pull one back for Rangers, but Ultimately, it was Celtic with the title for the 21st time. Edge, that's three in four domestic trophies on offer for Ange thus far. Nine points clear in the league. Uh, the Scottish Cup is the one that he hasn't won as yet. Uh, they've got a quarterfinal against Hearts coming up in two weeks. Uh, the one big thing looming over the, his head, I guess, is uh, is the Champions League. He'll be gearing up for another shot at that. But domestically, uh, couldn't be going much better at the moment. He's going well, isn't he, Ange Postacoglu? He's just killing it over there. Um, obviously, Champions League is... 
um, the big mountains for that club. We know how dominant they are in their domestic competitions. Um, I just wonder how many things do you have to win before he's given a serious offer to coach in the English Premier League, which you think would be around the corner. What do you think, Willem? How many things does he have to win before that offer comes? Oh, I think the offers will come. They might already be be coming that we don't know about. But the thing with Ange is he's only going to take a job that uh, he feels, well, where he feels he'll have full autonomy. He won't just go in now and take a club in the bottom three and try to get them out of relegation. He'll want a full pre-season. Uh, he'll want full control over players. He won't want managers. Uh, he won't want owners and, uh, and stakeholders interfering and saying, you know, sign this player or we're going to control this back this aspect of the club. He's the, uh, he's the full club manager. So the offers will come. It's just a matter of which one uh, suits him. Uh, and yeah, he uh, he has the right to be choosy because I think Celtic will have him for as long as he'll hang around. We'll move on to Socceroos Central for the Green and Gold Army. Just Socceroos this week because we did discuss the Matildas off the top. Uh, Jackson Irvine scored again for St. Pauli. They are now six undefeated in the Bundesliga 2 post-World Cup and have moved up to seventh, Rob. Uh, Jackson scored the game's only goal. Connor Metcalf uh, slotting in nicely under his wing in the midfield there. He started and played 55 minutes. Uh, again, all positive and an early Happy birthday for Jackson, 30 next week. Yeah, happy birthday, Jackson. Um, and, uh, or Freulich Weihnachten. No, that's a happy Christmas, I think. But uh, I'll improve my German by the time we come on next week. Uh, and I'm sure our German-speaking listeners will be uh, laughing as, as we go. But uh, in all seriousness, Jackson, he's just a great guy, 30 years old. I remember him when he was a young teenager. And those uh, of you who are out there listening will uh, remember the stories of him being at the 2006 World Cup uh, watching uh, at Kaiserslautern as uh, the uh, the Socceroos uh, perform their heroics and, and declaring to his family and friends that he was going to play for the Socceroos one day and, and what a great career it's been. He's uh, he's just a great uh, young man and uh, there's plenty of football left ahead of him and uh, and as this uh, you know this platinum generation of Australian footballers continues post-Qatar, uh, he's going to be a, a core part of that group uh, for, for a while yet. No, well said, Rob, and given the work that Jackson's doing on the international front uh, in terms of human rights and those less fortunate around the world, he is uh, quietly... Not, not to us, but quietly to the to the uh, general public, developing I think into one of our uh, one of our greatest, most so- socially conscious uh, Australians. So a big future ahead for Jackson. We're a fortnight into the new J League season. We'll uh, we'll round out with this: two wins from two for Kevin Muskets, defending champions Yokohama F Marinos. Two wins and two clean sheets for Mitch Langrak and Nagoya as well. So Mitch back uh, doing what he does best. Thomas Deng played a full ninety for promoted side Albarex Nigata in a two one win over San Fritchie, and down in the J two. Pete Klamowski's Montedio Yamagata sits second after two wins to start. Just across the pond uh, from Japan, Rob, some breaking news as we record. Jurgen Klinsmann uh, is going to lead South Korea to next year's Asian Cup and into World Cup qualifying beyond that. So a, uh, a huge name uh, at one of the biggest fish in our, uh, in our Asian confederation. Yeah, well, that is massive news. Uh, I think uh, Jurgen's last start for a national side was uh, uh, giving the... Uh, getting the Tijuana at the U.S. national men's side. Uh, um, so it'll be interesting to see. Um, he uh, he last had success, obviously, uh, uh, managing the, the German, well, not uh, not winning the ultimate trophy, but but uh, in 2006 in the in the Men's World Cup edge. So, uh, so that's a big story. Yeah, that's big news. I didn't expect that uh, to be announced by the Korean Football Association, but Jürgen Klinsmann gets another go at the cutting edge of international football and uh, obviously uh, Korea being a likely... Uh, World Cup qualifier um, that'll be exciting for Australian football to have Jürgen maybe in Australia or 
uh, the Socceroos uh, over in South Korea coming up against Jürgen Klinsmann. Yeah, big news for Asian football. Yeah, yeah, and always good for a quote, old Jürgen. So uh, it'll get publicity across the the, uh, uh, the the footballing diaspora around the world. Okay, well and well done, Derek. Thank you, uh, Edge. Uh, you just take a little backseat to World Cup Corner because we are going to talk to Willem and I, Jason Pine from Sky Sports New Zealand. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the World Cup, the Women's World Cup coming up uh, in less than five months' time from an Australian point of view. Jason's going to tell us all what's going on over on the other side of the pond. That's next on Box to Box. Guys, it's farewell summer. You might be listening to this on the last day of summer or the first day of autumn, but it's always time to get out on the barbecue and cook outdoors because we've still got some nice warm weather, don't we, Derek? And uh, you're going to have a little bit of time at home uh, with uh, with the uh, addition to your family not far away. So you'll be out on that barbecue cooking, I reckon, up a storm. Oh, well, look, it doesn't matter, rain or shine, Rob, I'm out there. But through British fashion, we did have one barbecue at the weekend, which kind of symbolised the end of the summer. It did feel like the hot weather was kind of departing us, so we went out there and had all my hoits ready to go. But to answer for you, I'll be out at that barbecue every weekend. There's plenty of options on there uh, for a nice meal at the weekend, and, of course, hoits will be with me uh, every step of the way. Absolutely, and I bet you Edge can't wait to get back and fire up his barbecue, can you, Edge? You'll be looking forward to coming home and, uh, and um, you know, firing up your, um, or, uh, whatever, I don't even know what kind of barbecue you get, but I know you're a very good barbecue artist. Oh, I'm looking forward to firing up the barbecue, Rob, but um, uh, also looking forward to getting into the aisle and getting some of those Hoyt's herbs and spices, and believe it or not, I know this is not related to Hoyt's, but I've not eaten Vegemite since early September, so I'm looking forward to having a piece of Vegemite or a little bit of Vegemite on my toast, Rob. Well, you never know. I mean, what's, uh, if you, I think if you've concocted enough uh, yeast extract from some of the Hoyt's uh, product, you might be able to make some Vegemite, but what you do there, we'll make sure you get all the, the Hoyt's herbs, spices, pickled vegetables, uh, and, you know, holes or worse, and all you could into in the supermarkets. You'll be happy with Hoyt's. Box to box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and as we said off the top of the show, while Australia are co-hosting the historic Women's World Cup later on the year, our brothers and sisters, of course, across the ditch from New Zealand are our mutual co-host. And whilst we've been talking a lot about the Australian preparations, both on and off the park, since the new year began, we haven't uh, spent as much time as we should have uh, talking about the uh, the football firms and their preparation and New Zealand's preps in general. So we're going to make good for that now with our good friend from Sky Sports New Zealand, the great Joe. Jason Pine, how are you, Jason? Rob, great, thanks, mate. Great to be with you. Mate, uh, great to be talking to you, mate. So, look, let's just talk first of all about um, the football ferns. I mean, as you know, you watch uh, um, international uh, um, teams closely. You know that Australia uh, dipped to a pretty low ebb uh, under under uh, Tony Gustafsson when, when he took over, some pretty heavy beatings against top quality op- opposition in Europe. But the tide started to turn towards the back end of last year and really peaked with a win against Sweden and this recent, you know, uh, glorified group of friendlies in the Cup of Nations uh, uh, has Australia in pretty good form. Now, on the flip side, um, it, it sort of feels like New Zealand might have left that run a little later um, with... Uh, the the warm-up matches against the the US national women's side so can you give us a sense of your thoughts of how the ferns performed um and uh, and were they 
they can see some significant improvement in the short to medium term. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether there was an intentional late uh, run or leaving of the run late by the football ferns. I, I just think that five months out from the World Cup that um, that there is still quite a bit of work to do for Yitka Klimkova, the head coach of the Ferns, and indeed for her players. Um, there are plenty of games, and you mentioned the two games against the United States in January. There were, in the last uh, week and a half, matches against Portugal and two against Argentina. So five games already this year, and, and more planned, as I understand it, for April and then before the World Cup itself starts. But unfortunately, New Zealand find themselves in a bit of a trough when it comes to the football Ferns, and um, the trough is really... Uh, mainly down to the fact that the team just has not been able to find the back of the net. Five games that I just mentioned, not a single goal in those five games. And in fact, New Zealand have scored just once in their last eight internationals. So you look ahead to the World Cup and you think, well, here's an opportunity for New Zealand as co-host to get out of a group that's got Norway, the Philippines and Switzerland in it. It's not the most daunting of groups, but if they don't start finding the back of the net, with some sort of regularity, then unfortunately that looks like a, a bit of a forlorn hope. So yeah, there's um, there's a bit of wailing and gnashing of teeth, I would say, guys, about the, the football ferns as we get closer and closer to the World Cup. So Justin, you called those two games against the US national women's side. I mean, what were the key areas that, that you identified as an observer? I mean, we are talking about, if not the best team in the world right now, certainly the best team over the past two, three decades. And uh, and whilst there's some competition for the number one slot uh, in women's football these days, uh, the US national women's side is always going to be in that discussion. So uh, did are there areas that, that you see for hope for, for the New Zealand women's side in, in, in the, the, well, less than five months we've got before the tournament starts? Yeah, well, um, first of all, with the US games, I mean, there were some mitigating factors, the, the most glaring of which was that those games were outside a FIFA window. So um, a dozen players who you would expect to see in the New Zealand squad at the World Cup uh, were not released by their club. So it really was an understrength New Zealand side. Uh, that wasn't the case in the recent matches against Portugal and Argentina, so that excuse didn't exist. Um, if you're looking for, for glimmers of hope, then look, what I guess most New Zealand football fans hoped is that by now we'd just be tweaking, we'd just be kind of refining, we'd have an idea of what the best 11 was, and they'd be playing together in a pretty cohesive fashion, and that we'd be looking forward to the World Cup with um, with a greater sense of optimism. I'm not sure what the best New Zealand 11 is. And the other unfortunate part of this is that there are a number of players on the New Zealand side who have been around the team for a long time and have played over 100 games for New Zealand, many of them. And it feels in some way as though some of them are just hanging on for this World Cup. Because we've known that New Zealand and Australia are co-hosting this tournament, have done for, what, three or four years when those hosting rights were awarded. And unfortunately, I think a, a couple of players are, are seeing it as a bit of a swan song and and may not be there as of right. There's a, a few more uh, layers of, um, of discussion around that, obviously. But, yeah, to answer your original question, can I see glimmers of hope? Yes, there are some, some players in there who... I look at it and think, man, they are going to make a bit of a splash when the World Cup rolls around. Unfortunately, there just doesn't seem to be yet a best 11 that you can confidently predict 
will be able to match it with the teams that I mentioned before. And what about the coach, uh, the uh, the former Czech defender, Shitka Klimkova? Uh, you mentioned her earlier on and the fact that she's had a, a relatively late run, similar to Tony Gustafsson. She comes with a pedigree from the US uh, national women's uh, uh, junior uh, setup. Uh, do, is there confidence in her as a coach to, well, obviously uh, there's not going to be any changes this close to uh, the event, but uh, uh, is there any talk about her and uh and her ability to to uh, to carry the, uh, the the gravity of the role of of a, of a national coach uh, of a proud sporting nation like New Zealand's that when the uh, you know the national spotlight's on, there's going to be expectations from from Kiwis that this team is going to at least be competitive. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. Um, and look, I think initially we we thought that Yitka would bleed, uh, Yitka Klimkova would be that person. Uh, she took over from Tom Samani, who I, I know is uh, is familiar with many of your listeners on that side of the ditch through his uh, association with uh, the game in Australia. And you know, you look back at the games that. Uh, Yitka Klimkova has had during her time in charge and we're up over 20 now and that's far more than than New Zealand's men's side have had in the same period and that's probably fair enough given the fact that there's a World Cup on the horizon you divert your resources towards that team and um, you know during that time I just wonder whether there's been a reluctance to blood new players to try new things there's been an over-reliance for me on, on that um, on that core of players that have served the team well over you know the last decade or so, but there just seems to be a I don't know a bit of a staleness about them and and a bit of a lack of creativity, which speaks again to the to the complete dearth of goals in the in the last eight matches. So yeah, I th- look, I think Yitka is doing her best. I I I don't doubt that she is you know sending a, you know spending every hour God sends to to try and find a way to have New Zealand perform more effectively. Um, but yeah, like I say, it, it, time is running out, you know, we're, we're less than five months away. Uh, and when things should be being refined, I wonder whether solutions are still yet to be found in a couple of areas. Jason, on the pitch, New Zealand's just had a a fantastic entree for what the Women's World Cup is going to bring with the intercontinental playoffs. The final three spots decided Portugal, uh, Haiti and Panama making their way through. Uh, Obviously, gripping drama on the pitch. I know you were behind the mic for a couple of those as well, Um, but maybe didn't quite... I mean, it couldn't really, but it didn't quite provide a, a logistics uh, tester given the uh, the smaller size of the crowds. Once the actual World Cup rolls around, it's going to be a much uh, a much bigger operation. So logistically, in terms of crowd management and organisations and stadia, uh, how is the organisation coming along from your side of the ditch? Yeah, from what I um, can gather, well, I'm uh, you know pretty well, and, and you're right. It was a test event, and, and a test event in, in ways more more, that, more ways than um, than just a. Um, you know, a, a crowd control type of thing, everything to do with getting um, the teams to and from their hotels and to the grounds and the media set up and, and all of the, you know, the procedures around getting dignitaries to games and things like that. On the pitch, I was um, I was really impressed. And, and the great thing about it was we got, the, we got three nations um, who are going to be attending their first World Cup. Portugal, Haiti and Panama have never been to a Women's World Cup. They will now. And just the emotion that I saw from those players when their passage was secured was just so heartwarming, you know, just the tears of joy. And by contrast, the, uh, you know, the desolation and the despair of those who fell at the final hurdle. And it just reminded me again uh, just how much this game means to so many people around the globe and, and just what, 
July and August are going to be like in our two countries when 32 countries arrive with their fans, with all of that passion, and with, you know, many of them designed on going very, very deep into this tournament. So, yeah, it was a nice little taster. You're right, the crowds weren't, weren't um, you know, absolutely massive. But um, then you, you look at, perhaps uh, by contrast, the USA are going to play the Netherlands in my hometown of Wellington in group play at 1 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon at Sky Stadium, which holds 35,000 people, and it's sold out. You know, uh, you know, five months out because a whole bunch of US and Dutch fans are coming down under to watch two of the best teams in the world. So, yeah, look, um, I know you guys will be, be starting to feel the excitement there now that 2023 has arrived. And I think the closer we get to July on the side of the ditch and on yours, um, you know, we're going to we're going to, you know, continue to have that excitement build. Maybe those positive ticket sales are an indicator to how you'll answer this this next question. But. I mean, in your sporting ecosystem, as in ours, football isn't the number one game. We keep saying on this program that the average man and woman on the street in Australia probably isn't clued into quite how big this is going to be when it finally does arrive. How's the hype and understanding uh, in New Zealand around just what this is going to bring? Yeah, I think it's absolutely the same over here. You're right. You know, there's uh, there are other sports that get a lot more column inches and a lot more space in the media outlets. And, and yeah, you often hear that from those who are involved that, you know, New Zealand and Australia don't know what's going to hit them when this World Cup arrives. Um, and, and I think that is the case, you know, and, and, and the, the advanced ticket sales, you see that they've come from, I think the last thing, I, the last metric I saw was over 120 countries uh, have bought, you know, all people from 120 countries have bought tickets to the World Cup. So we're going to have a lot of visitors to our two countries down at the bottom of the world. So I think they'll bring with them an enthusiasm and a passion that, that hopefully um, on this side of the ditch, anyway, Kiwis will get caught up in. Um, you know, when when teams arrive in town and and are playing games, their fans will be there and out and about and mixing. And we saw that actually in the in the playoff tournament. You know, there were there were some locals who just went a while along to watch a football match. You know, more out of curiosity than anything else. But they became Cameroon fans for the night, or they became fans of of Paraguay or Panama for the day. And I, I really get the feeling that's going to happen when the World Cup rolls around as well, but but to an even uh, greater degree. So yeah, it's um yeah it, it hasn't uh, it's not um not front of mind over here, but I get the feeling it'll it'll get closer to front of mind the closer that we get to July. And tell me uh, uh, what the response is locally to the uh, the suggestion and it appears to be more than a suggestion that FIFA are going to uh, accept the sponsorship of, uh, of Visit Saudi. Uh, Maya Jackman, uh, who herself is one of the uh, the ambassadors for the FIFA Beyond Greatness Champions team, which is uh, uh, designed to empower women, um, has come out with a real strong message, 50 caps for the football ferns herself. Uh, this story is more than rumbling in Australia and New Zealand has got a, a great history of, of public uh, consciousness when it uh, comes to stepping up uh, uh, in uh, in uh, this uh, space. Are you expecting uh, there to be even more pushback if this comes through and protests uh, outsides of grounds if, uh, if FIFA do let this one through? Yeah, it's a really hard one to, to predict, Rob. And look, I think the pushback has been absolutely predictable. And, um, you know, I think uh, the... The, the, the crystallization of it that I saw was when Alex Morgan, who's probably the most recognizable women's footballer in the world, you know, the United States, um, you know, 200 caps and however many goals she's got, um, said that if she went to Saudi, her rights would not be 100%, you know, available to her. So how can uh, a country that, you know, doesn't um, recognize 
human rights, um, particularly those of women, um, in the same way that many other countries do? How can a country like that have an association with the biggest female sporting event on the planet? And it's a very good question. You know, you think, well, what on earth are the organisers thinking? And presumably what they're thinking about is the financial investment that they'll get from Visit Saudi if they take on the sponsorship. I presume and expect there to be more pushback, absolutely, because there doesn't seem to be any kind of concession from Visit Saudi that this will be the um, the opening of a of a door to you know to the loosening of of the restrictions that are in place in Saudi Arabia. So, look, will it lead to protests and things like that outside outside grounds? I don't know. Um, all I know that is that if the sponsorship is um, undertaken by FIFA and by this tournament, then it's going to be a little bit clunky. It just won't feel quite right. And whether money trumps all, which often in these situations it does, um, will remain to be seen. But it, it just doesn't feel like a very good fit, does it? Brother, we'll let you go. Jason, it's always good to chat with you. Really looking forward to the, these, uh, the next few months as the, the clock ticks down to the World Cup uh, and uh, and we share the honours of, of hosting um, the event. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll get uh, on the blower with you pretty regularly, mate, and, uh, and count down the clock together. Always a pleasure chatting to you guys. Yeah, can't wait. I'll take your call anytime. Always good to chat football. And um, yeah, let's hope that uh, as the uh, tournament gets closer, uh, New Zealand's results uh, get better. We'll wait and see, I guess. All the best with it, mate. We hope they do. Jason Pine from TalkSport New Zealand, from TalkSport, from Sky Sports New Zealand, the Women's World Cup not far away. Okay, stick around on Box to Box. We're going to talk to Jamie Jackson from The Guardian next, Manchester United. Well, they're on the rise finally after uh, the uh, the long departure of Sir Alex Ferguson. Eric Ten Hag looks to be the man who is finally turning the ship around. That's next on Box to Box. Hey, hey, it's time to talk Chemist Warehouse, and it's time for you to stock up and save right now. Now, Willem, I know you like your electrolytes and your uh, your protein. Get along to Chemist Warehouse and get your Masashi Electrolytes watermelon flavour, maybe in honour of Harry Styles' watermelon sugar style, uh, for 300 grams, $16.19. Your INC Carnitine 120 capsules for $24.99 and Protein Coast Limit Blend 1 kilogram range $37.99. You'll be getting in there and uh, stocking up there, mate, no doubt. I'll tell you what, they saved me this week, Rob. Um, I was up in Noosa and my goodness, it was hot. The uh, the sunscreen that I'd bought at another chemist retailer clearly hadn't done the job, so I got back to Melbourne. Crispy, closer to something that you put your herbs and spices on rather than a human, but uh, I got into Chemist Warehouse, got the yellow vera, got it on the back and managed to uh, turn myself around in time for footy training. So thank you once again to Chemist Warehouse and those lovely smiling faces in the crisp blue shirts. Thank you, Willem. There is also naturopathic, a fat blaster, keto, fit fire, 60 capsules for 1949, OptiSlim Veal, CD Bar, five pack assorted variants, 1699 each, and JS Health Metabolism Plus Sugar Support, 60 capsules for 3149. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings. Yes, of course, they are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. That was a great chat with Jason Pine there from Sky Sports New Zealand. He's a a great fellow and knows his New Zealand football inside out. 
a man who knows his football on the other side of the world, inside out, is our next guest from The Guardian. We've been watching with interest ever since the departure of Sir Alex Ferguson from Old Trafford, what looked like a, and was a revolving door of managers. But that revolving door finally seems to have uh, closed because the arrival of Eric Ten Hag winning silverware at the first time of asking at uh, Wembley on the weekend against Newcastle United was as clear-cut as you could get. Jamie was there and we welcome him back to the show. How are you, Jamie? I'm very well, thank you. Okay. Yeah, doing really well, mate. Um, so, um, I guess the first question I'd ask is, as a person who who covers that Manchester United beat as closely as you did, uh, do you feel like uh, the this is not one of those false dawns? Um, think uh, um, that we've been through over the past. Uh, uh, However many years it's been since Sir Alex left, is it finally uh, the the reemergence of Manchester United uh, in a three way race for the title um, as as a as a football force again? Yeah, I think it's a, a good way of asking the question because there have been some false stones. Obviously, I mean Solskjaer got them going. Mourinho's the most interesting uh, comparison because he did win two trophies, but there was never really a sense of the team either playing interesting if I can use that word uh, and sort of him being happy the players being happy and a sort of a, a unification Mourinho and I'll be polite wasn't particularly liked at the club never mind the players just generally it, it just it just doesn't work my experience reporting on football clubs you know properly like sort of week in week out is you need a happy staff from start to to finish top to bottom bottom to top however you want to characterise it whereas this guy Ten Hag you know he is a nice guy as well as being a very, very smart man and a very, very good manager. Um, you know, Solskjaer, he was loved at the club, right? Everyone, you could not help but, but like Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, but his football was a bit gung-ho, a bit counter-attacking, and he never quite had the structure. So, yeah, so far, so good with Ten Hag. But, you know, they are in this title fight. And I, I know, you know, Arsenal got a game in hand or, you know, five points ahead and all the rest of it, but they are definitely in it. And to be able to say that and it not sounding ridiculous, sort of seven or eight months into him just joining last summer, when he walked into a bit of a mess, basically, Ten Hag, I think is a massive sort of, you know, feather in his cap. It shows how good he is. And yeah, I was at the game yesterday, the final yesterday at Wembley. And um, United didn't play particularly well all through the game, but they still beat them 2-0, a class or two above. You, you know, they didn't they snuff Newcastle out, basically. The only player I thought who was really good for them was Gumerez, the central, you know, the, the central midfielder, the Brazilian lad, who got injured towards the end. And when, when he went off, that was kind of the end of any hope they had. But yeah, I mean, it's all looking very bright so far. Has there been or needed to be a reset in expectations uh, around United? Yeah, I think so. And I think because the competition's a lot fiercer now, you know, Manchester City are a force, like a true force. Liverpool are, they faded obviously badly this season. Chelsea will come back into it. And also there was six years, wasn't there, since the last time they won a, a trophy. And that was their longest uh, stretch, barren stretch since the early 80s, basically. It's a long time for a club like Manchester United. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, City fans have become a little bit sort of, it, uh, not bored, but kind of used to winning cups. And they can be a little bit like that. It's just part of the sort of way it goes. Um, you know, if you're going to be winning lots of them or regularly or, or you know, seriously challenging anyway. Um, but, you know, you've got players like, what, what, I suppose, what, it's interesting because, you know, uh, Ten Hag went after De, uh, Frankie de Jong all, all summer. And then there was Rabiot. 
and then finally got to Casemiro, and Casemiro is probably their be- best player. I mean, I think Fernandez is a phenomenal footballer, but um, Casemiro has they haven't signed a proper midfielder basically since Carrick, which is two thousand and seven. I mean, think about that. I know Scholes was there at the time; they tried it with Pogba, but you know they just uh, this is what 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 they sort of needed, and this guy's come here, five Champions Leagues, you know, La Ligas with Real. But he's really into trying to re-spark, rebuild, revive United. And I think that's, you know, he's, it's, a, it's a great signing, really. Um, so, yeah, a recalibration, I think, is definitely the, the, the case. But I think there are reasons for that. I, you know, w- when when United were dominating for sort of, I don't know, a generation and a half under Ferguson, it was only really Arsenal who had a bit of a say. I think with three four league titles under Wenger in that stretch. And Blackburn got one. And it was basically 13 you know, to United. So it's slightly different football now in terms of the competition. But, um, you know, in, in Ten Hag, it's, in a way, football's like rocket science. Get a very, 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 very good manager. Get very, very good players. But, you know, for the last nine, ten years, since Ferguson left, they've just failed on both those counts. Yeah, it's not just been getting good players, though, uh, has it, Jamie? It's actually been rebirthing some players that you had that, that, um, that Solskjaer and and others couldn't get a tune out. So the one that strikes me is Fred, who was seen as part of this McFred midfield with Scott McTominay, which was kind of derided by Man United fans. Never mind, um, never mind opposition fans. But this guy, you know, with Casemiro coming in as the kind of Rolls Royce, said um, Ten Hag has turned players around like that, and he's probably not the only one he's turned their fortunes around either, is there? You know, definitely. Um... I mean, Rashford's another obvious one. I think four or five goals last season. It's now, I think he's been actually awarded that goal now rather than being an own goal. So I, th- I think he, if, if that's correct, he's now scored, well, he's scored in every round of the of the competition. I think it's 26 goals. Uh, easily his best season now. But yeah, Fred's an interesting one because, you know, Guardiola was after him. A bit like Alexis Sanchez who's after him. And now Alexis Sanchez went to United like Fred. Sanchez bombed. It looked like Fred uh, would do. But he scores the winner against Barcelona. Uh, and you're right, he's a very good emblem of what Ten Hag. This is what I'm saying. He's a very good manager in all facets. He's good with the media, with us lot. He's good with the sort of managing up at a club where, you know, you've got the Glazers and it's all a little bit kind of, they dial it in a bit, the Glazers, and I'm being polite. Um, you know, they're coming off the back of sort of the Woodward years and kind of executive level. And that's before you get to the football, you know, the training ground. And, you know, as we talk about Fred, you know, the man management, Remember, he dropped Rashford that Wolves game and he's overslept for a meeting. Then he came on 76 minutes, scores the winner. That went swimmingly. Ronaldo, you know, sort of left. And I know Ronaldo wanted to leave, but he was still there come sort of October, November. You know, he was sort of stinking the place out. That was a massive headache for him, uh, gone. So, you know, and he's a bit like Ferguson. He's a bit like Guardiola. You win and you, you understand that possibly that's when you're at your weakest because you can get a little bit sort of fat on 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 the win, if you like. And he was sort of saying that yesterday in the press conference after the game. This is great. It's intoxicating. I want it to be addicting, addictive for our players. But you have to understand it sort of starts again. And, you know, what you're seeing with these top operators is a pursuit of excellence. You know, Guardiola, Klopp, now Ten Hag. I mean, you know, Ten Hag has walked into that club. And I know Ajax is a massive club in the Netherlands, don't get me wrong, but it's not the same scale. It's not a Real Madrid. It's not a United sort of Barcelona, he's walked in there and basically, you know, torn the place apart in a sort of positive way, I'm sort of, I mean, he's just 
already it's his club. And when you get a top manager, I always think you can have a director of football, a sporting director, whatever you want to call him, but actually the manager runs the place, yes. City, under Guardiola, he runs that place. Big Air is seen the sporting director, you know, sort of very cover signs the place. He, he's there to facilitate what Guardiola wants. It'll be this, it's the same with Ten Hag. And I think that's actually the way it should be. I understand why you have sporting directors. So that if, you know, a guy leaves, then you have a sort of overall kind of ethos. But if the manager is not running the show, and I think this is kind of what frustrated Mourinho a little bit, although I do think he was short and he's over the hill. But if the manager isn't running the show, then I don't think a football club at the top level is really going to function. I mean, I know Real Madrid is always held up as an exception, but that's, you know, that that is a bit of a sort of phenomenon of a one-off. There's always an exception. But yeah, I, I, you know, Ted Hag with Fred, Luke Shaw. I mean, he's one of my favourite players, Luke Shaw. Just the way he plays football. He's always been technically very good, but, you know, Ten Hag dropped him at the start of the season. Now he's probably in the form of his life. You can go all through the team. Varane looked awful, yeah. to be honest, under Solskjaer, Stroke, uh, Ranić. I mean, he looked like one paced, was always kind of sort of half injured. Now he looks like, you know, a World Cup winner, which he is. So, everywhere you go, around Juan Basaka, he brought him on at half time. I thought that was a good move because uh, Sub Maximum was tearing up uh, Diogo Dallo at right back. No, De Gea broke the clean sheet uh, record yesterday. You know, all these things are great, but it would be interesting now to see. I'll be at the West Ham game, the FA Cup game on Wednesday. be interested to see how they go from here. Then they've got Real Betis. But I, I would suggest that any team now doesn't want to play United, you know, like on a serious, they really don't want to play them because he's got them going. You know, they've got one trophy in the bag. Do you, do you think... Do you th- do you do you think um, you know how many more trophies are realistic? I mean, and and do you think that it, it's more likely to come in in one of the other cup competitions like the FA Cup or the Europa League, or is there just something about that league form that's telling you that 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 could be the one in the crosshairs? And 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 do you think actually Man United fans um, would probably say, do you know what, we'd quite happily park the FA Cup in the way that Arsenal kind of did earlier in the season, kind of gave it to, to Man City uh, in a way that to go all out for the league because there's an opportunity there. Maybe some fans would, would, would say that, that'd be fair, but it's not, not Ten Hag's way. Um, and, you know, he kind of, it's a bit like Guardiola. You know, when you mentioned before about Carabao Cup or the League Cup being a way into sort of bigger trophies for these managers, Ten Hag's the same. I, you know, part of how a team wins, I know it's going to sound stupid thing to say it like this way, is to keep on winning. So, hmm. you know, you don't want to... I know no manager wants to lose, but I don't think he, he will He will sort of necessarily, you know, sacrifice one for another. I mean, the, the league's interesting. They, they, you know, um, United did not play either of those two against City or Arsenal, but they do play each other against City and Arsenal uh, at the Etihad. I think it's in April. Who knows what will happen by then? It's a little bit of a long shot, but it's not out of the question. You know, it, five points is not... Ma- or eight points, wherever it might be, if they win the game in hand out. So it's not massive, massive. It is a lot. I get that. But you just don't know. I don't think they will win it. But I think I'd be surprised if they don't win, you know, the Euro- Europa League or FA Cup. And it's interesting. If they, if, they, if they only end up with one trophy, this League Cup, they won yesterday, Carabao Cup, it might be viewed sort of in the sort of moment at the end of the season as a bit of a disappointment. But then, it, if you, which, which again says everything about what he's doing or what United are doing. If you then sort of stand back from it, you know, he's way ahead of schedule. I think they're going to qualify for the Champions League. You know, I've covered United now 11 years and it's always really interesting whatever happens, obviously, because Manchester United. But this is a particularly fascinating moment because this summer, 
coming up, who, who he needs to get in. You know, we talk about the title. If Martial could just stay fit beyond two and a half games or whatever it is, you know, because Weghorst, he played well yesterday, he created um, the sort of own goal stroke Rashford goal, but he's a bit one-paced and, you know, you have to put Rashford up there or etc. But if Martial can just stay fit, that might help him, but I think he'll address that in the summer. I think he'll try and get in someone like Harry Kane, maybe. Well, Jamie, it's always fantastic to talk to you, mate. Um, we could carry on, but we know uh, you've got to head back uh, uh, from uh, London, where you've been to uh, to watch that League Cup final. Um, before we do go, though, I just wanted to talk to you about uh, a new audio book you're uh, in the process of dropping. Um, so if you're a Manchester United fan or a football fan, for that matter, and you just want to be entertained by, uh, by a great yarn on on Eric Ten Hag and his journey at Manchester United uh, since he began. Um, this is a new format with uh, with Substack. So uh, so you go to drop uh, chapters on a weekly basis. Um, you've already prepared some of the content already. And as the the season and story plays out, you're going to continue to drop uh, uh, chapters on a weekly basis. So tell us a little bit about it and how the listeners can, can get on board, mate. Yeah, th- thanks very much for asking. So basically, it's not actually an audio book. It's, it's a book that I've, ri- that I've written. Um, it's called Because They Can Play, and the next word is effing good football. Uh, <laughs> that's what it's called. because that, that was Ten Hag's quote after they beat uh, Arsenal-Liverpool right at the start of the season. They'd lost to Brighton at home, 4-0 away at Brentford, got absolutely battered at Brentford. Martins had a shock. It came off at half-time, all the rest of it. And they, I think it was Liverpool the next game, actually. They beat, they beat them, and he was asked afterwards you know, what happened and how did he manage to turn around? He said that he said, because they can play effing good football. So in the word effing, the U is asterisked out. <laughs> but anyway, I've written it sort of as the season's gone along. Um, and the idea with Substack is it's sort of a, a writer's website, very easy to sort of like present your work on there. Um, uh, so from the 1st of March, it goes live. The first sort of chapters are free uh, to read, to give people a sample, you know, if, see if it's for them or not. Then if they fancy, it's four ninety nine a month for weekly chapters. Then from then, you go to the end of April, so that's March to April. And by the time you get to the sort of start of May, the book is caught up in terms of the season, yes? So what you then are reading from the beginning of May is kind of what's unfolding in the final week weeks of the season. Hopefully, it'll be exciting for United. Uh, now that they've won a trophy, I've got to say, people, you know, particularly fans are probably more minded to want to read about success. I did a Solskjaer biography and that wasn't great because he's always on the verge of being sacked. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. Um, I've, I'm sort of calling it like a sort of noir poetic account of um, the season. Maybe it's a little bit different to most sports books. I write fiction as well. So, you know, I'm sort of more, I don't know what I'm going to say, more purple prose minded. But yeah, that, that's basically what it is. So if people sort of search out my Substack, just Jamie Jackson on Substack, have a little look at it. As I say, they've got, you know, just there's going to be some free stuff on there and then it's up to them you know, whether they give it a go. Yeah, good on you, Jamie. It's uh, it's a pretty easy way to, to get a taste of it and um, and, and get a uh, a free uh, go at it before you you put your dollars down or your pounds down wherever you are in the world um, euros for that matter. Um, but uh, <laughs> we yeah, we we love reading your copy, mate. So we'll be yeah, well. I've already subscribed, mate. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having a listen and or not a listen because it's not an Thank audio you. book. It's a it's a book and uh, and reading it, mate. So uh, um, Jamie, look, we'll let you go. Imagine we're not going to jump on that train, mate. So thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's fascinating to uh, to watch this reemergence of, of the mega club and uh, so many stories on and off the park uh, that, uh, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you ever so much. 
no worries. Jamie Jackson from The Guardian. Make sure you get on that Substack and uh, subscribe to uh, what uh, is absolutely bound to be a, a ripping read. All right, stick around. We're going to bring it home. We've got a couple of little World Cup tidbits to, uh, to close the door on before we wrap up this week's episode. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. It's been a great show so far. Talking to Jamie Jackson before the break there. Jason Pine from Sky Sports New Zealand. But we are going to bring it home with a couple of little stories we haven't gotten to yet. Willem, um, World Cup-wise. Yeah, it is congratulations to the final three nations to qualify for the Women's World Cup. All three first-time qualifiers. Uh, those playoffs completed on Tuesday and Wednesday last week after you gents recorded. So Portugal were the first one through. They scraped it at the expense of Cameroon in Hamilton. Uh, Niara Achoit had equalised at one all in the 88th minute, uh, only for a handball at the other end to grant Portugal a penalty uh, in the 98th minute, I believe it was. So they go into a group uh, with the USA, Vietnam and Netherlands edge. So that suddenly looks like a, uh, a very strong group. Portugal, as I said, a first-time qualifier, but strong pedigree. Yeah, that's a good group, isn't it? Um, it'll be exciting for uh, people in New Zealand to see Portugal join uh, the United States. So, yeah, look, um, that was a good one. But what about, um, I think the story is definitely the team that we adopted when we last spoke about the past, and that's Haiti. I mean, what a what a story that is, um, the, the Haiti's women's national football team, you know, with all of the challenges that that country has faced, has qualified for the World Cup. Just how amazing is that story, Willem? And uh, you've got all the details for us. Yeah, well, I can't say I've seen much of Melshi de Mornay, but from the research I've done, I've pretty much assured on Twitter that she is a star and deserves to be on the world stage. Uh, She scored a brace and that puts them into a group against England, Denmark and China. So a good bit of variety there. Uh, The second came in the 98th minute. Uh, So yeah, it was 1-0 for the majority of the game. Uh, DeMornay scored in the 98th and then Chile did strike back in the 101st minute and that's all in regular time. So a fair few stoppages there. Uh, Late, late drama. And then the final of the three games saw Panama a little bit more comfortably uh, go through against Papua New Guinea 2-0 in Auckland. Goals to Marta Cox and Riley Tanner. Uh, That puts them into the grip of Death Edge, France, Brazil and their regional rivals, Jamaica. Certainly does. Panama. Uh, don't give them much hope of getting out of the group, but they'll at least be at the World Cup. Um, and what about uh, you know the two South American teams not making it? Yeah, really uh, quite uh, fascinating stuff that Concacaf has been able to deliver to two teams into the World Cup out of this playoff uh, routine. A bit of a sad one to finish, Rob. The tournament's going to be robbed of one of its biggest stars. That is France's Wendy uh, Renard. 142 caps. She's played her entire career with Lyon, who we know have been the pace setters for women's football over the past decade. Uh, She's withdrawn for the sake of her uh, mental health, having had long-term issues with the manager, Corinne uh, Diaka. Um, And following her announcement, Edge, her teammate, it's Marie Antoinette Katoto and Kadidi Atudiani have uh, also withdrawn in support. So they've lost a bit of experience there and uh, never good to be so unsettled on the uh, on the eve of the, the tournament. A uh, little bit of history with the two as well. Uh, Diaka stripped Renard of the national captaincy after the 2017 Euros, but she did lead, later regain it, Rob. So uh, after all the 
the sort of drama we've seen over the previous years with Ada Hegerberg, obviously very different stories, but US players playing at the World Cup, and this seems like a uh, pretty sad reason to exclude yourself. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but um, these political stories seem to come up and, and you can never really understand the the... the the layers that there are behind these decisions. So yeah, not not a not a good uh, uh, story, uh, but um, they just seem to be popping up uh, over football with monotonous regularity. Sadly, no, they certainly do. Edge, what are you going to leave us with? You got a, a spare tidbit that ha- that's hanging there that hasn't made it into the show? No, I'm going to leave that for uh, stoppage time for the uh, special Wednesday edition of uh, Box to Box, which is a uh, uh, a bit of an add-on for all our listeners. I've got plenty of good stuff in stoppage time, but you've you've covered World Cup Corner expertly, Willem, as uh, as I would always expect you would, and it's good to have you back. Thank you very much, Rob. He's uh, he's going to come in hot on Wednesday. Will Michael assure <laughs> me? So make sure you're uh, you're on stoppage time once you finish this one. Well, absolutely, because I'm going to take uh, the pine myself, and you guys are going to carry it home. It's always interesting listening to the show when you're not in it. Um, well, well done as always, mate. Thank you. Good to be back. Michael, um, we'll um, hopefully uh, have you uh, back home pretty soon, mate. You're not far away now, I think. Uh, so uh, good to good to have you back on again this week. Yeah, I'll be throwing spitballs at you across the studio uh, pretty soon, Rob. Make sure you subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Offside wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.